Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. And we will read through the entire chapter this morning. Beginning in verse 1 through verse 44. Acts 27. The word of the Lord says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramithium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slow for a number of days and arrived with difficulty of Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lazia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed for Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeastern, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violent, violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. 
For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened up the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and led them in the sea at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or in pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. May the Lord bless the long reading of his word. Some of the most consequential moments in biblical history, as well as some of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture, have to do with the troubles and trials brought about by the waters of the sea. For instance, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 3 and following, the sea is the place from which four terrifying beasts arise, which represent great evil empires. They are said to arise out of the sea metaphorically to symbolize evil and destruction. The sea is a realm containing dark and powerful forces within. The central saving act of God in the Old Testament, the Exodus, even with all its mighty plagues and Moses' heroic role, ultimately led the people of Israel to a climactic and somewhat suspenseful ending as they came face to face with a sea that quickly became a trap, a deadly trap. If the Egyptians had been a powerful enemy, imagine what the Red Sea looked like in that moment. Only a miracle could have saved them. The heart of Jonah's story places him in the middle of a raging sea 
that was ready to punish him for his rebellion against God. Eventually, a great monster of the sea turned Jonah around. In the Bible, the sea plays a terrifying role. If the 12 disciples were here, they would say a hearty amen. One day, as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, a storm arose and the waters became a source of pure terror. They thought they were going to perish. In Psalm 93, verses 3 and 4, the waves of the raging sea represent a powerful enemy that only God can defeat. Moreover, if you think about it, bodies of water in general were a common metaphor for trials and tribulations. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, God says, When you pass through the what? The waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. It should not surprise us then that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And in chapter 21, verse 1, the sea was no more. In the Jewish mind, the sea stood for many things such as chaos, conflict, and evil. It is a force of destruction. It is a power that kills. And so as Paul is finally allowed to begin his journey to Rome, the only thing standing between him and his final destination was precisely the sea. The Mediterranean Sea, to be more precise, a formidable enemy. And I don't think this is coincidental. I believe Luke included it here with much intentionality. It will be a dangerous voyage, and the sea will do its worst to Paul and to all those around him. But God will see him through. I originally titled this sermon, A Sea of Troubles. Very clever, right? A Sea of Troubles. For that's literally what happened. But then I realized that even with all its tense moments and very close calls, Acts 27 is not there to emphasize the troubles, but to provide opportunities to display great truths that we're, we are prone to forget, but we must always remember. In this sense, the Christian life is like the relationship between the stars and the night. The darker the night gets, the brighter the stars appear. Likewise, there are moments both in human history and in our own private history when only dark times can help us see God's mighty work with greater clarity. Acts 27 is a type of dark backdrop against which you can see at least three bright, shining truths. Truths that apart from the fury of tribulations, you wouldn't be able to see. So to bring this into sharper focus, let me give you the summary of the entire chapter in four words. You have it in your notes. Four words. Here's the technical summary of the chapter. It doesn't look good. That's the summary of the chapter. It doesn't look good. Having found nothing in Paul deserving of death, we read in chapter 27, verse 1, that it was decided that we should sail for Italy. So Paul is finally going to Rome. Now, the events of Acts 27 took place in the year 59 A.D. Festus sends Paul to the capital city of the world, Rome itself, to finally appear before the emperor, 
Nero. It will be a long, long journey. The man put in charge of this entire voyage was a Roman centurion named Julius. As a centurion, he would have been over 100 soldiers. So it is safe to assume he had many of those soldiers at his disposal during this dangerous journey. Why make that assumption? Well, if you read in verse 36, there were a total of 276 persons on board the ship, many of whom would have been slaves and prisoners, such as Paul himself was. Losing any of them during this journey would have meant very severe punishment and even death for Julius and any of his soldiers. So the centurion took this trip very, very seriously. In verse 6, it is Julius himself who finds another ship sailing for Italy and puts the people on it. He had the authority and the responsibility to do that. Luke also mentions in verse 3 that Julius looked favorably upon Paul, letting him visit with his friends and receive proper care by them. I think that's an important point to the narrative, but I'll return to it in a moment. The first part of the journey, recorded in verses 2 through 8, from Caesarea to the island of Crete, where Fair Havens was located, was very slow and very difficult, as Luke indicates in verse 7. The wind was against them from the beginning. Starting in verse 9, however, we get a picture of just how dangerous this journey was about to become for all of them. Luke mentions the fast being over, which is a reference to the Day of Atonement. That day fell on October 5th of the year 59. So just to give you some perspective, the most dangerous season to be on the Mediterranean Sea was any time between mid-September through March. So these 276 people, Paul and Luke included, are about to embark on a journey through the Mediterranean Sea that would have caused even the most experienced sailors to have deep, deep concerns. But even with all the danger associated with the sea, there was no lack of sea travel during this time due to the high demand for grain, especially coming from Rome itself. Ships carrying grain would make the trip often. The business side of things made it worth the risk, but many, many, many people paid a very high price. Long story short, the events that unfold in the rest of the chapter are not surprising at all. A storm leading to a shipwreck was nothing uncommon, hence Paul's warning in verse 10 and following. Paul obviously was not a sailor, but he was a very experienced traveler. He knew this was not a good idea. But alas, the centurion decided to go ahead with the journey. Rome was calling. After the life-threatening ordeal, they will make it to an island called Malta. From Malta, it will be fairly smooth sailing all the way to Rome. So that's the story. That's the story in a nutshell. Let us meditate now for a few moments on the opportunities that the raging sea provided. What is Acts 27 showing us? 
Here's the first shining truth in the midst of the deep darkness. The sea provided, first of all, an opportunity to display, number one, the unfailing nature of God's faithfulness. The unfailing nature of God's faithfulness. Let us connect some dots here. Festus and Agrippa found nothing in Paul deserving of death. This being the case, Festus, a Roman, as a Roman authority, was bound to grant Paul's appeal to the emperor. From a strictly historical point of view, this was a political arrangement. Paul making it to Rome had become a matter of Roman policy. Paul, as a Roman citizen, had appealed to Caesar. He had to make it to Rome. But this is far more than a mere political arrangement between a Roman citizen and a Roman governor. Much more is at stake here in chapter 27. After all, not even Roman policy had the power to guarantee Paul's safe arrival in Rome. As a Roman governor, Festus had the authority to put Paul on a ship, but he didn't have the power to ensure his arrival in the process. Myriad of complications could have prevented Paul from making it to Rome, especially traveling through the Mediterranean during October. In other words, Festus, the governor, even with all his authority up until that point, he did his part and basically all he could possibly do. But now Paul's safety and his very life are completely outside of Festus' control. So what's at stake? Certainly not Festus and his ability to place Paul before the emperor. That's out of the equation completely. What's at stake in chapter 27 is something far greater than his authority or Roman policy. What's at stake here is the very faithfulness of God. The very faithfulness of God. Let me put it this way. For Paul to make it to Rome, for Paul to make it to Rome was as important as for Jesus to make it to Jerusalem. Why? Well, there are many reasons we could list. Chief among them, is that for Jesus to make it to Jerusalem in order to die at the hands of the Jews and the Romans was a matter of what? Was a matter of God's faithfulness to his own covenant, wasn't it? For Paul to make it to Rome was also about divine faithfulness. This time, it was about Christ's faithfulness to his own word. Or to put it differently, if the Mediterranean Sea is able to stop Paul from arriving at Rome, then what in the world do we do with Acts chapter 23, verse 11, where Jesus appeared to Paul in Jerusalem and said to him, Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also where? In Rome. In Rome. So the question posed by Acts 27 and the Mediterranean Sea is not, can Festus guarantee Paul's safety? We know the answer is a resounding no. He has no power to do that. 
The question is rather the following. Will the Mediterranean Sea, with all its fury, stand between Jesus and his faithfulness and prevent him from fulfilling his purposes for Paul? That's the question. That was a stake here. Thankfully, we know the ending. Therefore, we also know the answer to that question is a resounding no. But here's an important lesson from this initial point. This is an important lesson for you and I to remember. The unfailing nature of God's faithfulness, then, does not mean smooth sailing through life. The unfaithful nature of God's faithfulness does not mean smooth sailing through life. It does not mean the absence of a raging sea between us and our final destination. There can be plenty of stormy weather ahead of us. A sea of troubles can possibly be just around the corner. In this world, you will have what? Tribulations. What the unfailing nature of God's faithfulness does mean instead is this. God will keep you and lead you through whatever comes your way until His purposes for you on earth are done. Then, he will take you home. I'm going to say that again. God's faithfulness means this. God will keep you and lead you through whatever comes your way until his purposes for you on earth are done. Then he will take you home. But Paul making it to Rome as an ambassador for Christ and his gospel was bound to happen for another reason, which I will address during our last point. Let me present to you the second shining truth we see displayed against the dark backdrop of the raging sea, and it is this, the new life of God's people. The new life of God's people. I have a few sub-points here that I want to show you how this new life is manifested. First, we see favor with men as opposed to enmity. Favor with men as opposed to enmity. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. This is clearly not always the case. We have seen plenty of enmity coming against Paul from people that hated him to the point of death. This is undeniably true. What I mean is different. As God's new creation in Christ, Paul did not seek enmity with men. Instead, he sought peace with all men. This is, after all, what life in God's kingdom is about, isn't it? As Paul himself said in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul was showing the centurion the exact same thing he showed Felix and Festus and Agrippa during the trials. Paul lived as a member of a different kingdom, 
the kingdom of God. And the Roman centurion saw the difference in Paul. Paul's impact upon the centurion was such that when the soldiers had decided to kill the prisoners at the risk of having them escape, the only thing that stood between them and death by the sword was Paul's testimony to the centurion. The centurion wanted to save Paul's life, therefore all the prisoners were saved, as verse 43 makes very clear. Remember what Paul said in chapter Romans 12, verse 18? If possible, Paul said, so far as it depends on you, do what? Be at peace with everyone. Paul did not resent the centurion. He sought peace with him. The favor given to God's people from those who are supposed to be their enemies, as in the case of the centurion with Paul, is an important component of the biblical teaching because it represents God's vindication of his people before a watching world. Remember, God granted the Israelites favor with whom? The Egyptians. God granted Joseph favor with the guards. And God granted favor to Daniel and his friends with the king. When favor is bestowed upon a believer by an unbeliever, he shows the truthfulness of his confession. As Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The second thing we see, the second manifestation of the new life of God's people we see is faith in God's word as opposed to hopelessness. Faith in God's word as opposed to hopelessness. Notice what we read in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appear for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The world is a hopeless place. But in the midst of hopelessness, Paul stood among them as a man of faith. He believed the word spoken to him by the angel in verse 24, which was simply a confirmation of the words of Jesus back in chapter 23, verse 11. It is likely Paul needed a little extra encouragement at this point, and the Lord graciously granted it to him. And having heard the heavenly word of assurance, he fought the hopelessness of those around him through faith in God. You and I, brothers and sisters, we have God's written word that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. The only question remaining is always the same for all of us. Will you believe it? Will you trust him? The third manifestation of the new life of God's people is this. We see gratitude in all circumstances as opposed to worry. Gratitude in all circumstances as opposed to 
worry. After encouraging everyone on the ship to eat something, we read in verse 35 what Paul did. Look at verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Let not that little deed escape your notice, for it is no little deed. Remember, Paul is giving thanks after two weeks of pure misery upon a ship tossed to and fro by the storm. They were all wet, they were all cold, they were all seasick and fearing for their lives. By the world's standard, this is not a time to give thanks. This is a time to worry. But Paul is a new man. Paul has a new life in Christ Jesus. And the fact that he gives thanks publicly is very significant. Remember the context. He wants the 275 other people on the ship to know two things about God. First, Paul says, my God is the provider for everyone, even pagan Romans. Paul is not thanking Jupiter or Minerva. Paul is thanking his God only and inviting everyone on the ship to do the same. And second, Paul says, my God is worthy to be trusted even in the midst of a ferocious sea. So Paul, give thanks. Fourth and final manifestation of the new life of God's people is this. We see love for neighbor as opposed to or instead of selfishness. Love for neighbor as opposed to selfishness. Paul's new life was manifested in his obedience to the second greatest commandment, which is what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul showed concern for those on the ship and sought their well-being, not only spiritually, but also physically. As a faithful disciple of Jesus, Paul, too, encouraged the needy and sought to alleviate their misery, just like Jesus did on his earthly ministry. If you would have seen Paul on the ship, you would have known who his master was. He did not allow himself to become consumed with self-preservation or self-pity. Instead, he loved neighbor by tending to the needs of others, even as he himself suffered with them. This, my brothers and sisters, is new life in Christ. Now think about this with me briefly. All 275 people, excluding Paul here, all 275 people were exposed for the first time, for the first time, to the life and words of a man who had been transformed by the power of Jesus. Now, we don't know what happened to them after the shipwreck and their three-month stay in Malta. We only know of Paul and Luke. But it is not that difficult to believe that after this traumatic experience, God brought many of them to saving faith in Jesus through Paul. Why not? 
All of which reminds us of a very important lesson we have learned many, many times over through the life of the Apostle Paul. And it is this. Here's the lesson we learn from Paul. Almost always. That in our trials, in our trials, someone is always watching. In our trials, someone is always watching. And that few other circumstances can provide better venues to shine the light of the gospel than the really trying ones. For nothing can draw out your true convictions like having the ground shaken under your feet. I'm going to repeat that. The lesson we learn from Paul is that in our trial, someone is always watching, and that few other circumstances can provide better venues to shine the light of the gospel than the really trying circumstances, for nothing can draw out your true convictions like having the ground shaken under your feet. So here's the third and final shining truth we see displayed against the, back, the dark backdrop of the raging sea. Here it is. The global reach of God's salvation. The global reach of God's salvation. I said a few moments ago that Paul making it to Rome through the Mediterranean Sea was about Jesus' faithfulness to his own word. He told him that he would. But I said that there was something else. Indeed, there is. I want to address that now. Paul making it to Rome was also about the father's faithfulness to his own son. The father's faithfulness to his own son. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, which we read last week, we see the Father promising the Son something very unique that will become His possession. What is it? Can anybody tell me? The ends of the what? The earth. I almost gave it to you, huh? The ends of the earth. Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus, the Son incarnate, knowing this, says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to be his witnesses, where? To the ends of the earth. What did the Son know? He knew what was his. So he tells his disciples, go and get it for me. Back in the time of the Apostle Paul, and from the point of view of Jerusalem, Rome was the end of the earth. So I believe that in the back of Paul's mind, as a faithful student of the Old Testament, he would have known that he was now witnessing in his own circumstances the beginning stages of the Father fulfilling his promise to the Son with Paul himself being an instrument through which this fulfillment was now taking place. The Son is now beginning to receive 
what was promised to him by the fire, by the Father. So the trials of the sea brought about the following results in your notes, just in summary form. 276 diverse people were exposed to Jesus. Soon, an entire people group from a small island called Malta will also hear about Jesus. And ultimately, this gospel of Christ will reach the very heart of the Roman Empire. Why? Why all of that? Why any of this took place? Because the Father loves the Son. And to the Son, the Father has given how many things? All things, including Rome, and including also you and me. So let me finish with this question. How sure are you, my Christian friend, that you will reach your final destination, both in this life and in the life to come? I can answer that for you. Your assurance is the same as Paul's. Your assurance is proportional to the love of the Father for the Son. Your assurance that your purposes will be fulfilled here and that you will make it to the Father's presence is proportional to the love of the Father for the Son. As long as the Father loves the Son, your destination is secured. For the Father will ensure that His Son gets His reward. And His reward includes you, my Christian friend. You. Will the Father fail to give His Son what He deserves? His reward, including you? He never will. Paul fulfilled his purposes because the Father loves the Son, so will you, so will I. And upon this truth, we must rest, both now and forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful reminder. Thank you for your word that speaks to us always. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that our security, our assurance, that our purposes will be fulfilled and that we will reach our destination and that we will stand before you one day is proportional to your love for your own son. May this be the fuel of our hope. I pray for those who are brokenhearted this morning. I pray that you will strengthen them, encourage them by this truth, that they are loved as you loved your own son, and that because of your faithfulness to your son, you will fulfill your purposes in them. So Father, use what we have heard this morning to encourage our hearts and to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.